This week, Purdue reaches tentative settlement with dozens of state AGs. Alta Mesa files for Chapter 11. PG&E settles with ad hoc subrogation group. More on all this and, as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Connor Skelding, reporter for Reorg in New York. And I'm Raksha Manjanath. Later this episode, we'll get a deep dive on Frontier Communications with Director of Credit Research Mark Fisher and Senior Distressed Debt Analyst Andrew Sung. It's Sunday, September 15th. Purdue Pharma reached a tentative settlement with dozens of state attorneys general and thousands of municipalities early last week, according to industry reports. Of the reported tentative settlement, the company only said that it, quote, continues to work with all plaintiffs on reaching a comprehensive resolution to its opioid litigation. At least 23 state attorneys general did not sign on to the plan, having publicly come out against it as of Thursday, September 12th, according to a reorg tally of public statements and reports. Notably, Ohio's Attorney General David Yost, who did sign on to the proposed settlement, said that that, quote, does not render moot his writ of mandamus that he sought in the opioid multi-district litigation to pursue his state's claim ahead of the rest of the MDL. Turning to the MDL, Judge Dan Polster certified the cities and counties requested nationwide negotiation class. The judge said that certifying a, quote, negotiation class rather than the more common, quote, litigation class was a, quote, innovative solution formulated by the court-appointed special master along with experts and parties in the MDL. Judge Polster wrote that he hopes the negotiation class construct will, quote, directly or indirectly facilitate the voluntary, fair, adequate, and reasonable resolution of the cities and counties' claims pending in these MDL proceedings and in related state court litigation and promote the overall resolution of the litigation. At last week's Morgan Stanley Healthcare Conference, Mallon Crop Management addressed the $30 million settlement in principle announced September 6th, which, if finalized, will, quote, fully resolve the Track 1 cases against all named Mallinckrodt entities that are currently scheduled to go to trial in October 2019 in the MDL. CEO Mark Trudeau said this settlement, in addition to the $250 million sale agreement for subsidiary BioVectra announced on Tuesday, should further demonstrate that the company continues to operate in the normal course of business. Trudeau also noted reports that the company hired legal and financial advisors and called out recent media headlines about a potential Mallinckrodt bankruptcy, saying the company's actions have been, quote, misinterpreted by the market. Trudeau further stated that the settlement with Cuyahoga and Summit counties provides the company with the appropriate time to engage in discussions about a path to a potential global settlement with, quote, finality that is satisfying to both parties. The company may have a vehicle to separate the legacy specialty generics business, which includes the opioids business, and globally settle the opioid litigation. While Trudeau declined to comment further on this, he noted that the potential avenue has not yet been open prior to the settlement of the Track 1 cases announced last Friday, but that the company now believes there is a pathway towards a global settlement. Management noted that it has incurred expenses of about $40 million in connection with the opioid litigation. Also last week, Reorg published an analysis on Endo, Given that the fate of the ongoing opioid litigation weighs heavily on Endo's capital structure, the ultimate size of the liability and Endo's ability to fund those liabilities remains unknown. As is the case with other companies involved in the opioid litigation, corporate structure nuances will influence the relative strength of the opioid claimants vis-a-vis the company's debt obligations. 
In Endo's case, it appears that a number of valuable assets, including certain intellectual property, trademark rights, and manufacturing sites, are owned by entities that are guarantors of the company's bonds and bank debt but are not named as defendants in the opioid MDL. All else being equal, this means that Endo's bondholders and lenders have a more direct path toward realizing value from those assets than do the opioid claimants. The Riverstone-backed stack operator Alta Mesa filed for Chapter 11 with nearly $1 billion of net debt late Wednesday evening in Houston, seeking to pursue a dual-track strategy of marketing and sale process for all or substantially all of its assets while continuing negotiations with key stakeholders. Alta Mesa will be marketing both debtor and non-debtor midstream assets. The filing came before a $32.5 million deficiency payment due Thursday to revolving lenders after the company's borrowing base was redetermined to a lower level. The debtors have commenced an adversary proceeding against midstream affiliate Kingfisher Midstream LLC and Oklahoma Produced Water Solutions LLC, or collectively KFM, seeking a court order to authorizing it to, quote, set aside certain gathering agreements. According to Alta Misa, the gathering agreements are, quote, quintessential related party transactions. According to CFO John Regan's first day declaration, the company attributes the bankruptcy filing to, quote, a number of challenges in recent months, including depressed oil prices, which hurt the company's revenue and profitability, an over-levered balance sheet, and liquidity constraints. Regan states that the debtor's liquidity became, quote, particularly constrained after a borrowing base redetermination in August 2019. As a result of the redetermination, the debtors were approximately $162 million overdrawn under their revolver and only had $40 million in cash on hand, says the declaration. Regan states that the AMH debtors were required to pay down the excess borrowings over five consecutive monthly installments, with the first deficiency payment of $32.5 million due Thursday, September 12th. Regan explains that, quote, following the August 2019 redetermination, the debtors faced an imminent liquidity shortfall and no actionable pl- path to meaningfully extend their runway without jeopardizing the value of their assets. Additionally, says Regan, the debtors had, quote, limited means to achieve a consensual deleveraging transaction absent the protections afforded by the bankruptcy code, and thus they sought bankruptcy protection. Judge Marvin Isger on Thursday granted all of the Alta Mesa Resources debtors relief requested in their first day motions, subject to certain modifications stated on the record. While the first day motions were largely uncontested, the debtors had faced some pushback with respect to their cash collateral motion prior to the hearing, with administrative agent Wells Fargo filing a reservation of rights out of abundance of caution due to ongoing negotiations. Friday morning, the PG&E debtors and the Ad Hoc Subrogation Group separately announced that they had reached an $11 billion settlement, in principle. The Ad Hoc Subrogation Group represents, quote, approximately 85% of insurance subrogation claims arising from the 2017 Northern California wildfires and the 2018 Camp Fire. In connection with the settlement, PG&E disclosed that it has, quote, amended the previously announced equity financing commitment agreements to accommodate the total amount of subrogation claims contemplated by the settlement and reaffirmed the total $14 billion equity financing commitment target for the plan. In its own release, the subrogation group noted that, quote, 
While this proposed settlement does not fully satisfy the approximately $20 billion in group members' unsecured claims, we hope that this compromise will pave the way for a planned reorganization that allows PG&E to fairly compensate all victims. The settlement follows the debtors' filing on Monday of their plan of reorganization, which contemplated a $14 billion rights offering, as I said, that's backstopped by, quote, certain financial institutions. While the accompanying summary lists $1.5 billion in backstop commitments from specific institutions, a press release stated that the company would work to obtain the full $14 billion in equity commitments, quote, over the next several weeks. The summary included numerous letters providing for the arrangement of debt financing and the placement of the equity financing from Barclays, Citigroup, Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, and Morgan Stanley. While differing in form, the letters generally provide that the banks were, quote, highly confident in their ability to raise the 35 to $40 billion in debt and equity financing necessary to effect the company's reorganization. Last Thursday, the Superior Court of California for the County of San Francisco issued a tentative ruling in the North Bay Fire's coordination proceedings, permitting the Tubbs Fire trial to proceed on a preferential or fast-track basis. The court noted also, quote, it is possible that causation can be bifurcated and tried first, and that's if that would be helpful to the bankruptcy court. The tentative filing would also deny the PG&E debtor's motion seeking to transfer the trial to Sonoma County. In describing its decision to fast-track, the court reasoned that there is a, quote, heightened possibility that the interests of, quote, many of the plaintiffs participating in the present motion could be prejudiced, given those plaintiffs' ages and medical histories, as well as the case's procedural posture. Regarding location, the court said that it did not have sufficient information at the time to determine whether trial in Sonoma or San Francisco County would be more convenient for likely trial witnesses. On Monday, the Promesa Oversight Board, the Puerto Rico Fiscal Agency and Financial Advisory Authority, and the PREPA supermajority holders under the PREPA Restructuring Support Agreement agreed to an RSA amendment that would permit National Fi- Public Finance Guarantee Corporation and Sincora Guarantee Incorporated to become parties to the RSA. The RSA amendment contains an amended recovery plan term sheet. The Oversight Board disclosed that the RSA has now been joined by holders of approximately 90% of uninsured bonds and all PREPA bond insurers, and noted that despite the RSA amendment, the economic terms of the RSA remain unchanged. Also on Monday, a group of banks, including Citigroup, Goldman, J.P. Morgan, and Merrill Lynch, which were sued last month by National Public Finance Guarantee and MBIA Insurance Corporation in connection with their underwriting of more than $66 billion of Puerto Rico bond issues, filed an adversary proceeding seeking to remove the case to the U.S. District Court for Puerto Rico from the Commonwealth Court of First Instant in San Juan. Ultimately, the banks seek to have the matter heard in parallel to the Title III proceedings. On Tuesday, federal authorities announced a 15-count indictment against two FEMA officials and the former president of Cobra Acquisitions, LLC. The indictment names Asha Natif Tribble, who was FEMA Region 2 Deputy Regional Administrator and served in other FEMA leadership roles in Puerto Rico from October 2017 to September 2018. Jovanda Patterson, a former FEMA Deputy Chief of, Chief of Staff who resigned to work for COBRA in July 2018. And Donald Keith Ellison, who served as President of COBRA Acquisitions LLC until June this year. The three face up to 30 years in prison if convicted on the disaster fraud and related charges. 
During Wednesday's omnibus hearing in Puerto Rico's Title III cases, Martin Bienenstock of Prosker Rose, on behalf of the PROMISA Oversight Board, said that the Oversight Board now expects to file a Commonwealth Plan of Adjustment this month. Bienenstock said the Oversight Board opted not to file a plan in August because it would have, quote, jammed the new governor. Also during the hearing, Judge Laura Taylor Swain said that she would grant a request to modify her state to enable employees' retirement system parties to file a supplemental procedures motion. Judge Swain also said that she would issue a supplemental order related to the confidentiality of mediation after complaining about news reports, including ones from Reorg, that contained procedural information related to mediation. Other top stories last week were... Guarantees from Endo's significant operating subsidiaries could favor lenders and bondholders over opioid plaintiffs with respect to certain assets. Fifth Circuit issues long-awaited GSE's ruling. Opinion includes majority decision, partial dissent. Syncreon, dual English schemes sanctioned by judge in English court. Bankruptcy industry first for U.S.-based group. And as always... Here's Jim Holloway with the week ahead. Well, thank you there, and good morning, folks. And it looks like it's one of them kind of weeks ahead. You know what I mean. So without any further ado, on Monday, September 16th, there is a DS order conference in Legacy Reserves, an omnibus hearing in Jimboree, and a Tubbs Fire state court scheduling conference in PG&E. Tuesday, September 17th, omnibus hearings in FTD, Fury, and PHI, status conference in PG&E, and a mission, excuse me, and a sale order enforcement hearing in Mission Coal. Wednesday, September 18th, it's the attack or the infestation or the rival, whatever you want to call it, of the omnibuses again. This time it's for SR, South Cross, and LBI. There is a motion to disband hearing in Halcone and a DS approval hearing in Payless, plus the confirmation hearing in Sears. And you know, there was for the longest time this enormous iconic Sears sign, red blinking neon and all that, that loomed over what they used to call the Third Ward here in Houston. Took it down last year and it's sitting in a vacant lot now next to a taco truck and a place that'll cut your hair for $3. And sometimes I hear they'll give you a bowl of soup too, just like in the old days. Anyways, on Thursday, September 19th, the four-missioned Sears confirmation hearing continues, along with an omnibus hearing in Windstream, an NOL motion in Alta Mesa, and a final dip hearing in Sanchez Energy. Also, Thursday and Wednesday, too, there's something related to PG&E called a Wildfire Management Plan Phase 2 Workshop. Well, everybody likes workshops. Maybe you should check that out. And Friday, September 20th, there is nothing of any real significance. Thanks, all, and back to you. Thanks, Jim. Now, here are Mark and Andrew with a discussion of Frontier. Thanks, Raksha. So I'm here uh, today with Senior Distressed Debt Analyst Andrew Sung and Head of Real Covenants in the U.S., Peter Washkowitz, to talk about Frontier Communication. Um, it's an important day for Frontier, something that we've had uh, sort of soft-circled on our calendar for a little while, uh, coupon day, um, or as our colleague Jim Holloway likes to say, tap on the shoulder day. Over $300 million of interest uh, comes due today, uh, or technically tomorrow because it's the next uh, business day and it's something that uh, certainly got a lot of attention a lot of discussion around the uh, the investment community so one two I want to go through want to think about some of the options here obviously we have no idea what's going to happen um, with the uh, with, with with the interest but want to 
go and uh, dig a little deeper into Frontier. Now, Andrew and Peter are fresh off a webinar that they uh, had just done last week. Uh, so we encourage uh, you know listeners to listen to the um, listen to the replay. It's up on the site, um, or reach out to your salesperson. They'll send you a um, a link to that. But let's uh, talk about some of the uh, the, the highlights um, from it. Uh, get out maybe a little uh, a little extra, maybe a little additional uh, thought. So Andrew, um, you know, want to basically ask you, you know, so they they have this big um, interest payment, but that aside, um, pretty daunting capital structure. Um, operationally, you know, we all know what's going on in the um, in in the cable space um, in terms of subscriber loss, competition from other types of services. So my first question to you is, you know, given the size of the, of the capital structure here and what's going on operationally, um, why wouldn't they? I mean, what, what, what are the reasons basically they would file for, um, for bankruptcy or try and restructure uh, sooner rather than later? Reasons why they would or reasons would why they would. Yes. Reasons why, why they would. Um, yeah. I mean, I think um, as you'd pointed out um, or as, as we had pointed out on the webinar, uh, you can point to a lot of reasons why they would not uh, file for bankruptcy. Um, you know, it's a company that, uh, you know, if you just sort of do your uh, credit analysis 101 as far as, you know, capacity to, to service their interest, uh, pay some near term debt maturities and ability to generate cash flow and, uh, you know, generate liquidity, um, you know, there's really no impetus for them to file before their maturity wall in 2022, 2023 and so forth. Um, but, you know, I think if you sort of look holistically, it is a capital structure that where they have over 17 billion of debt, uh, that, needs to be refinanced uh, to be sustainable in the long term uh, and you have a declining business uh, supporting uh, this capital structure and so you know they have um, you know they've lost subscribers uh, in total over one and a half million uh, over the last 12 fiscal quarters following um, their acquisition of the Verizon uh, assets in California Texas and Florida so um, you know you have a declining business um, that you know, is servicing an unmanageable capital structure on one hand, um, which would support the thesis of, uh, you know, potentially getting in front of it and filing for bankruptcy preemptively. Uh, but on the other hand, you certainly have uh, an avenue for them to keep keep the option going for the next few years. Um, again, they're, they're more than capable of doing so. Um, but then obviously you sort of run into, in 2022 from 2025, a very unmanageable debt load, uh, that's trading, you know, around 50 cents on the dollar, um, that, you know, they certainly have potential options to try to refinance, but, uh, you know, it's sort of anyone's guess as far as what the likelihood is that, um, that something gets done. And that's something that Peter can obviously speak to as far as what their options might be. Yeah, and, and um, it's you know it's interesting because like you say, you get companies typically you know like to see what happens, extend um, extend the option as long as possible. Um, and you, you point out though on the webinar, uh, and I think that's what's gotten a lot of people uh, talking is just how flat the curve is, which uh, you know everyone sort of scratches scratches their head um, about you know, what what does that mean in terms of a flat curve? Yeah, I mean uh, you know you can sort of look at term structure of debt in a couple ways. You know a lot of times it's just sort of. Uh, a curve on a yield to maturity basis, meaning that your near term maturities would be trade at the lowest yield because in theory they're less risky because you're going to get paid back sooner. Um, and then, you know, that curve would increase over time. Uh, companies where 
the jump to default risk is much higher, uh, might trade flatter on a dollar price basis because they start to trade closer to where unsecured recoveries would trade. And so in this case, uh, you know, yield is pretty meaningless for these near-term bonds. I think the 2020 bonds, you know, technically on a yield to maturity basis are over 100% or something because uh, they're trading at 63 cents on the dollar. So, you know, that's a meaningless metric, but um, it's certainly trading much closer to, uh, you know, where unsecured recoveries might be, which, you know, the market seems to think is closer to 50 cents on the dollar. And so um, it's interesting because it's a very small maturity uh, to where they have more than enough capacity to pay that off um, to where, you know, you, you pay six cents on the dollar they you model it out any way you want they can pay that off in cash but uh, the market you, you obviously have to expect what have to respect what the market prices are telling you and they're saying that there's a high likelihood that maybe they won't pay that off thanks Andrew uh, so Peter um, let me bring you into the, the conversation on the webinar you go uh, into a lot of different options they have based on um, the, your read of the um, of the indentures or the credit agreements. Um, just can you, you know, go through, um, you know, not to rehash, you know, what you said on, on the webinar, um, but maybe um, just summarize a couple of things. And then I'm curious, what do you think is, um, is uh, what would have the greatest effect on, um, you know, on, on the troubles that they have right now? Um, sure. So um, uh, thank you for not making me go through everything again. Um, it, uh, the webinar, we, we did go into, you know, a lot of detail because, um, you know, while a lot of these concepts are, you know, very kind of covenant oriented, interpreting, you know, grammar, it, it is very significant in terms of what. Uh, um, anyway, just to kind of, you know, summarize what I had mentioned on the uh, podcast, uh, rather on the webinar. Um, so, I mean, essentially, you know, the bank debt and the secure notes and the CTF notes, are really the only um, the only uh, debt documents that have kind of a traditional high yield uh, covenant package. The big takeaway from that is that you know they let's say they they permit around you know one one and a half billion of secured debt. Some of that is first, some of that is second lien, um, and then the the bank debt um, the bank debt and the first lien notes allow all senior secured notes to be refinanced with junior lien debt. The second lien notes also allow all unsecured notes to be refinanced with junior lien debt. So when you take those together, um, you know, under, under those documents, uh, Frontier could refinance all the unsecured notes uh, with third lien debt. Um, the CTF notes don't have a similar kind of lien basket, but they do have one of these acquisition baskets. Um, and then so kind of the big question in terms of this debt capacity is, you know, how you interpret these, these acquisition lien baskets that kind of broadly essentially or essentially say the company can incur liens uh, to secure uh, financing, not to exceed the value of the assets acquired. So kind of the main question uh, for this whole structure is really the interpretation of the acquisition liens basket um, and kind of there are about there are four permutations which I just went into that range from, you know, the $10 billion, which is the most permissive, to um, the least permissive, which is actually that the company is in breach. So I, I can just get to that quickly later, but um, a couple of things we didn't mention on the pod, on the uh, webinar, these are kind of a little less likely just given the, the debt load that they do have to deal with, but they can obviously continue kind of doing asset sales like they recently did. Um, and they do have about, uh, you know, $1.3 billion of capacity to transfer assets to unrestricted subsidiaries to allow those subsidiaries to raise secure debt in kind of a siloed 
structure. Um, so, you know, the unrestricted subsidiary to deal with, uh, you know, the upcoming maturities. Again, uh, it's 1.3 billion of uh, transferred assets. Uh, even if you could raise, you know, debt equal to 85% of those assets, it's not really going to move the needle so much. So, you know, after all the conversations I've had with, with subscribers, even after the webinar, it really still comes down to um, the interpretation of the acquisition means basket. Thanks, Peter. Um, so, obviously, you know, it depends on the interpretation, but to the extent that um, there is uh, there is a lot of capacity under that, Andrew, that would probably go a long way in terms of addressing the capital structure, right? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, really the the hurdle that they're facing is the unsecured maturity wall between 2022 and 2025, which in total principal amount is about $8.8 billion. Uh, during that time, they also have you know, a pretty large amount of, of bank debt and, and secured notes due as well. But, you know, let's assume for the time being that given where those are trading, that those could potentially be refinanced. But, you know, maybe that's an incorrect assumption, but let's assume that for now. Um, it does behoove the company to at least try something. I think just, you know, you have $8.8 billion of debt, uh, unsecured debt coming due during that three-year time period, trading at around 50 cents on the dollar. You know, why not try to take advantage of that discount? You do have the secured debt capacity is, you know, through one interpretation to where you have some first lien, some second lien, and then the remainder would be third lien debt to where, you know, if you're able to somehow exchange this $8.8 billion for, I don't know, 60, 65, 70 cents on the dollar, um, push out your maturities, um, you know, at least leading up to that, I think even with the asset sale proceeds, and even if you model in a decline in the business, there's really no liquidity threat to the business to where um, it really is a debt load um, maturity wall discussion to where um, I think it makes sense to to keep trying to push push it out and keep refinancing um, to the extent they can, which, uh, you know, obviously, as Peter had mentioned, there, there are interpretations that show that there are avenues that they can do so. Thanks. And Peter, uh, you know, certainly uh, some investors agree as well uh, that that could be a good avenue. Um, a couple of months ago, Aurelia sent a letter to the company encouraging them to um, to do some exchanges, uh, you know, unsecured to secured uh, debt exchanges. Um, but you have a different, uh, perhaps a different interpretation? Um, yeah, so I, I actually, I do. Um, you know, right, Aurelius did write a letter and, you know, they kind of argued that the acquisition means basket um, read, you know, just on the four corners of the page, um, you know, would allow the company to do this kind of massive secure restructuring. And yes, I agree that, um, you know, if you're just looking at the four corners of the, of the page, um, I would come to the same conclusion. Um, but I, I don't think it, it's that simple. I mean, if you just kind of, you know, go back to, let's just say, the, the, the windstream ruling, um, the judge in that case said, you know, whenever a, a, a contract term is ambiguous, you need to kind of you need to look outside the document. And he went into kind of what the definition of um, ambiguous is, and it, essentially it is where reasonable minds would differ over the interpretation of a word or a phrase. I mean, just based on kind of personal experience and how many calls I've had with subscribers. Um, the, the way this basket is interpreted is, is kind of all across the spectrum. Um, and it just seems that it would be very easy to show that uh, reasonable minds vastly differ um, in, in terms of this interpretation. And I actually I agree with that. I, I think if you, if, you were to, if you were to read this basket to allow uh, $10 billion of debt, you're essentially saying that the people who drafted this document 
the intention of the of the of this basket was to allow Frontier to incur uh, debt based on the value of assets it acquires throughout time after the notes were issued, and it can incur this secured debt at any point in the future, regardless of whether it still owns the assets and regardless of whether the assets have been you know cut in half. Uh, whether the assets are worth 10% of what they were worth when they bought them. So it, it just leads to a conclusion that despite, you know, so Frontier bought the assets for $10 billion. Even if the assets are worth $10 today, uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, they're getting $10 billion of debt. It just, it doesn't kind of, it's hard to rationalize that that is the, that was the true intention. I think the more reasonable, um, the more reasonable interpretation is that, um, you know, when they when they bought the uh, Verizon assets, uh, the company issued a term loan A, which was refinanced with the first lien note. Um, I think the first lien notes can be attributable to this acquisition liens basket because they were they literally refinanced debt that was actually incurred to acquire assets. Um, so if you take that interpretation, which, which I think is reasonable, and also um, you know a lot of people do see. Um, the correctness in going this path, uh, but again, you know, some people can argue for Aurelius too. I mean, they have a good argument. If you take this path, the company has about 1.3 billion of new money secured capacity, um, because if you net out the the term loan, uh, the first lien notes from the company's secured debt, um, the other remaining lien baskets in these notes would allow 1.3 billion of of secured debt. So that so that actually is the that would be the limiter of the entire structure. Uh, regardless of whether the secured debt allows all existing debt to be uh, refinanced with secured debt, these notes would only allow 1.3 billion of uh, of secured debt, and I think that is the most reasonable uh, interpretation of it of the clause. And um, you know, if I had to pick, um, I would I, I would I would agree with with this path that it's it's 1.3 billion dollars. Okay, great, thanks, thanks, Peter. I guess we'll uh, we'll 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 see what everyone's interpretation is, or particularly the company's interpretation, and uh, we'll see what their next move is. Uh, appreciate it. And if you haven't listened, um, reminder again, please uh, go and listen to the full uh, discussion by Andrew and Peter. That's on uh, the Reorg website. Peter, Andrew, thank you very much. Uh, this has been great. And Raksha, back to you. Thank you for listening to another Reorg Weekly Review. As always, you can find all Reorg podcasts on our site media page, iTunes, and SoundCloud. This has been The Week in Reorg, and I'm Raksha Manjanath. 